however you trade, it doesn't really matter whether you're following charts or your pure gut instinct, whatever. Um, the data can can lend important insight as well. But in my experience, most of the value add is where nobody else is looking. And most people are not masters of their emotions. They're not masters of their intuition. And because of that, there's a lot of money, in my opinion, left on the table uh, that's just sitting there for those who endeavor to do the personal work. Because this is all very personal work. If they're engaged in the personal work, uh, it tends to be the case in my experience that they, they perform better uh, because there's zero competition there or very little competition. You're listening to the Steady Trade Podcast. A podcast that inspires traders to make meaningful strides and pursue their passions. Your hosts are Tim Bowen, the lead trainer at Stocks to Trade Pro, Kim Ann Curtin, the Wall Street coach, and Steven Johnson, the up-and-coming trader who's always willing to learn. Together, we'll sit down with experts to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and discuss how all traders can level up their trading careers. Aloha, everyone. Welcome back to the Steady Trade Podcast. Today, we have the whole band back together, Stephen Johnson and Tim Bowen. And our special guest is Jason Apollo Voss. Jason and I go uh, back about five or six, no, seven years, 2017? I think, no, nine years, my friend. I think 2011, 2012. Yeah, it was right after I moved to New York way back in the day. That is amazing. It's just time goes so fast. Uh, Jason is, besides a really good friend, uh, a brilliant, brilliant man and, and inspiring. And he's one of the few people in my life who I know can kind of balance his, this amazing intellect with this kind of spiritual intelligence. And it's just been really fun to know him. He also was very encouraging to me uh, when I was writing my book. He's one of the Wall Street 50 featured in my book, Transforming Wall Street. And this is Jason's book that matches my office perfectly, The Intuitive Investor. Uh, and I'm going to just tell you a little bit about Jason. Uh, before retiring at age 35, he was a co-portfolio manager of the Davis Appreciation Income Fund one of the nation's largest money management firms and among the largest shareholders uh, for several familiar brands. Uh, during his tenure, he bested the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, and DJ, DJIA by staggering percentages. Lipper Analytical Services named Davis Appreciation and Income Fund a Lipper leader, and it was ranked number one in the investment category. The fund was also a Morningstar, a regular Morningstar analyst pick. Uh, but that's just, you know, a small piece of who Jason is. So welcome, Jason. It's really good to have you. you here. Thank you. You know, Kim, Kim I, that's such a kind introduction. The, the one thing that I'm proudest of, though, in the years that I was a portfolio manager, uh, our fund was one of the first 10 picked by Morningstar as uh, receiving stewardship grade A. And I think that may be one of the reasons you reached out to me back in the day to be a part of your book. I, I'm a big believer in the little guy and that the little guy should be protected by the big guy and that the little guys can beat the big guys pretty handily, which I, I hope we talk about today. Well, that's, that's you know, I, oddly enough, you know, the, I, I mean, I don't know how much you checked out the podcast, Jason, but, you know, we're geared towards the little guy. You know, you know our our demographic is the, the new trader with probably a couple thousand dollar account looking to scratch that together and, you know, and, and build that account. But yeah, I mean, the, the steady trade dem demographic is the little guy for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of the episodes uh, that you guys have featured. Kim has sent me a couple, and I, I saw a couple uh, as well, I think in her feed, on your Facebook feed, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, you know, because of uh, the demographic we have, I'm just curious, you know, you, you have such an interesting journey. I, I, I'm, I'm tempted, though, honestly, to interrupt myself and ask you if you would be willing to start because Stephen uh, and Tim may not have read this in the book, but I'm curious if you would do the tune in to the temperature that you always give to your uh, oh, sure. groups. Yeah. That exercise is probably one of the most, if you, if you stop and think about what's going on in that exercise, it can change your life pretty dramatically. It's something I've done with many audiences over the uh, course of my uh, speaking career. And I first developed it, prior to the publication of Intuitive Investor, and it was meant to illustrate how much of the world is happening around us that we're just not paying attention to. So the exercise, very briefly, and for those watching the podcast, I encourage you to do it with us, and you guys, uh, or the three of you who are joining me live here, uh, do it as well. What we're going to do is very simple. Uh, we're going to take 10 to 15 seconds, and all we're going to do is to tune into the temperature, the feeling of the temperature of the room. Go do it right now. Okay, I'm going to guess that was about 10 seconds. Um, the three of you, since you're, you're, I, I've got to work with my live audience I've got, how many of you uh, raised by show of hands and leave your hands up, thought to yourself, I don't know how this makes me a better investor, yeah, something like that. What's this exercise about, right? Um, see, you might have thought, hey, it's about 74 degrees Fahrenheit in my office, 22. If I do this with a live audience, I have people keep their hands up. Everybody does the exercise except for tune into the feeling of the temperature of the room. And what the exercise illustrates is that we immediately take an experience, which is very simple, which is just the feeling, Right. Uh, divorced of numbers and words, uh, and just to tune into the feeling of it. And the feeling of the temperature exists independent of our ability to describe it. So a dog or a cat sitting in my room right now in my office would have an experience of the temperature, but we people are taught almost since birth to describe everything around us in an, in an analytical way. So we, it's natural for us to tune into the temperature of the room, and we estimate its, its measurements, you know, based on some scale like Fahrenheit or Celsius or Kelvin, if you're really nerdy, um, or we describe it with words, or we judge the experience immediately. And yet, there's data there. So why is that applicable in investment setting? I'm a big believer that half of your investment success, yes, the analytical work, the data is important, but the soft skills are also important. And intuition happens in a spot or in a moment pre-judgment pre-description, where we're tuning into what's around us and we're feeling. So we might be watching an executive of a business we're interested in investing in while we're watching CNBC or we see a live interview on some other format. Um, we could be in person if we're at some sort of a conference or something. And there's a content there. How do I feel about this person? How do I feel about what they're saying to me? And that content exists before we describe it. And that temperature exercise lets people know that we're on autopilot in terms of intuitive content. It's always there underneath everything, but we rapidly go away from it. And that's into an analytical framework, and we're, we're trained, honestly. Um, your parents ask you, 
What do you want to eat for, for breakfast? Uh, what do you want to drink? Are you thirsty? Did you like the movie? Did you like this? Did you like that? And from the beginning, we're training our mind to schmear past all this rich content that, that happens to be there. And so a lot of the book that Kim quoted is about how do we untrain that and get back to a place where we have control of our minds again. We can turn off that inner critic, that inner judge of everything around us. I'll just, I'll just quickly jump in as well. And I mean, the, the, common, the common thing about traders is everything that we want to do goes against uh, what we should do to win. We have, we have like, every, we, we have the fear, we have, no, we have the fear, we have the greed, and, and, and the, the greed makes us chase stocks. The fear makes us sell when maybe we shouldn't. So, I mean, I think in general, stock trading is very counter, counterintuitive to everything we've grown up and believed in our entire lives. So, I mean, from that context, I, I really believe, and, I, and I've, I've kind of done some coaching work with Kim as well. It's almost about resetting the mind. It's resetting the mind, gaining a higher level of consciousness, and, and really, really, really being aware of what kind of human needs you're hitting by making a decision in the market. Yeah, and I, I'm a believer in analytical stuff too. There's there's rich information in data. There, you know, whether that's however you trade, it doesn't really matter whether you're following charts or your pure gut instinct, whatever. Um, the data can can lend important insight as well. But in my experience, most of the value add is where nobody else is looking, and most people are not masters of their emotions. They're not masters of their intuition. And because of that, there's a lot of money, in my opinion, left on the table uh, that's just sitting there for those who endeavor to do the personal work, because this is all very personal work. If they're engaged in the personal work, uh, it tends to be the case, in my experience, that they, they perform better uh, because there's zero competition there or very little competition there. I, I agree. I think, I, think, I think that's part of what... Uh... You know, tell us a little bit about your journey, about how you were able to retire, how you were able to see what was coming before the 08 crisis. Just speak a little bit to that, if you would. Oh, my. Um, yeah. I was afraid you'd ask that. Not because I don't want to tell the story, <laughs> because it's, like, that, that could be, like, I've done this over cocktails, you know, and beers with people before. And that could be a two-hour talk. Um, <laughs> it's a struggle to sort of like, okay, Jason, can you narrow this down to something chunk-sized? Um, I, I think I would start before, before the retirement. Um, I, I really saw investing as a really beautiful way of sharpening your consciousness because the market doesn't lie. You're either making money or you are not. And so consequently, if you believe the pathway to better success is to improve yourself, then investing can become a pathway and a spiritual pathway at that because you're getting incontrovertible signal about how in tune your mind is with the reality around you. If it's a tune, you're going to make better decisions. If you're making better decisions, the returns will be better. So I think pretty early in my career, I recognized that investing was a spiritual pathway, that there was a really beautiful aspect to it, which is objective information slamming me in the face on a daily basis in terms of, did you get that right? So retiring early, one, another way to phrase that, because that's kind of an archetypal thinking, and that tends to also obscure, because when people you know, believe in you know, the boy wonder or whatever, um, another way to rephrase the retirement is Jason did a lot of work on himself, 
and he got to the point where he wanted, uh, he got pretty expert at that, and he wanted even more than investing would allow. So I retired at 35. I could have kept going as an investment manager, but I really was obsessed with consciousness and sharpening my consciousness. So I, I did what I'll call a shaven-headed cave dweller thing. I was 35 years old. I wasn't getting younger. There was a martial arts teacher whose books about martial arts and consciousness I'd been reading since I was in my uh, like late single digits, like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and he was getting older. I had started a dialogue with him back and forth, and he indicated he was close to retirement. And I thought, I've got a once-in-a-lifetime chance here at the top of my game, lipper number one, whatever, to walk away, study martial arts, study consciousness, which is, as far as I can tell, boundless. There's, there's no edge to it. And that was, quite honestly, a lot more transfixing to me. And then in 2004, to your specific question about why did I retire when I retired. Yeah, martial arts was a part of it. Greater personal development was part of it. I also had a really profound sense uh, with the meditation that happened uh, October 21st, 2004, that there was going to be a global financial crisis. I didn't know the timing of it. And that's, that's the devil of being an investor. You could absolutely be right in understanding what's going to happen. But the timing right. is tough. <laughs> stuff is we all get a vote. Every investor gets a vote. So because of free will, the timing of it's messed up, right? And that's really tough to predict. So I was pretty sure there was going to be a financial crisis, and I didn't know what to do about it, but I was pretty damn sure that it would be pretty all-encompassing. And I talked to a lot of friends. Uh, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time, and a lot of spiritual folks there, and I told them my vision. They said, yeah, there's a palpable sense on the horizon of something big is coming. And then we're not even talking investing, just a reckoning, a, a, a fork in the road spiritually for people, and you get a vote. And I thought, hey, what a great time. Exit at the top of my game. If I'm frugal, um, I can, you know, live without working. I can do my ship and headed cave dweller thing and, and uh, have some fun, which I did. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, would you, do you guys have a question? I was going to ask another go, go, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, there's no such thing as a future fact. I love that. And I love all that that represents. Tell us more about what that means. It's a quote from your book. Yeah. And I even own the URL. There is no such thing as a Do future you? fact. That's good. <laughs> I, I anticipate at some point doing something meaningful with that instead of just a redirect to my, my personal website. Um, there is no such thing as a future fact. It's meant to highlight that all of investment management uh, that most people learn is to look at data. And all data by definition is uh, a record and a logging and a measurement of something that happened in the past. But investing unfolds in the future. It is my decisions made today relative to leaning into the wave of the future that's coming my way that makes the difference. And another analogy that sort of illustrates there is no such thing as a future fact uh, is most people approach investing by conducting autopsies. And an autopsy is on a corpse. Right. Well, all data by is information about a corpse, but really what you want is a physical. So if you're looking at a business or a stock or whatever you want to invest in, you really need a, a check-in with a physical. And when you do a physical, you're like, what are your habits? And what are the habits of the executives? What is your plan for how you deal with the future? And then you make some sort of assessment, intuitive-based assessment, as well as intellectual-based assessment on are they doing the right things relative to my beliefs about the future? And we denigrate a physical, but we praise an autopsy. An autopsy is objective. The physical is kind of subjective, but it's really the subjective that makes, makes you the money. So there's no such thing as a fact. By definition, all facts are things that happened in the past. 
but investing in pools in the future, you got to have future-oriented skills. Otherwise, you're not going to do very well as an investor. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, meditation. Talk a little bit about that to somebody who maybe has never considered meditation before. Uh, speak to you know how it, how it began for you, how you'd recommend someone begins, and what the benefits to uh, being an investor. Again, most of our audience are penny trade, you know, traders. So so how they may be saying to themselves, how could that benefit me? What, uh, what yeah, there's so much to say here. Um, the first distinction is actually I'm going to take half a step back for the audience as you're listening to this. What I would like for each of you to do is think about the great insights you've had in your life and what you were doing at the time. Chances are you weren't grinding something out. Uh, you were probably doing something unrelated to the right. place where you wanted a deep insight. You Walking, showering, something like that. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you were doing. Uh, you might have been gardening. Um, you know, I like to do the dishes or whatever. That's because when you are engaged in those activities, uh, a special thing is happening. Your your mind is in a state where there's a, a focus, yet a loose awareness simultaneously. So, for example, if I'm exercising and I'm, say I'm doing bicep curls, right, there is a proper technique. So I've got structure there, but then there's also, uh, I have to have ongoing awareness of, am I doing the technique correctly? And those two things in combination, neuroscientists and psychologists have called top-down control, which is mental focus. I can control what I'm thinking from a higher order down, as well as metacognition, awareness of awareness itself. And so that's the first thing is check in with your great insights in your life, and you weren't doing anything super analytical. You're doing something totally otherwise. The next thing, the big distinction, is to make a distinction between meditative states and meditation. Meditation is a practice designed to achieve meditative states. All of us, and science has proven it, achieve meditative states every single day. Most of us, though, are not aware of when those moments are happening. But remember the first exercise, check in with the great insights of your life. You were in a meditative state, most likely. Yeah. Like, so like an example I always think of is like, like driving. You know, it's like you could, you could drive and it's like you don't even, you know, it's like you just, you don't even know how you got to where you're going. You just <laughs> magically appeared there. But oh, it's because you were disconnected. Yeah, yeah. You nailed it, Tim. In fact, in uh, The Intuitive Investor, I had that very thing. If you've ever <laughs> driving somewhere and arrived at your destination without awareness of how you got there, but you remember your inner dialogue, you were in a meditative state. So this is an argument for meditation as a practice. And there, there are four main practices. It doesn't really matter to, to name them all. But the reason I'm an advocate of meditation is how you access those states of consciousness that are pre-verbal, pre-math that the temperature of the room exercise illustrated. How do you get there? How do you get to a feeling space where you can tune into things like, what's the vibe of the executive? Does he make my skin crawl as I'm listening to him? What's the mood of the market right now? So, Kim, you asked about retirement. I also, on my blog, at one point predicted uh, or called the March uh, 9th, 2009 market low. And the way I did That's is right. I went into a meditative state of consciousness using meditation as a practice, and I oriented my consciousness, pre-verbal, pre-math, to what is the feeling of the mood of the market? And, I mean, it's kind of gauche. It's not necessarily, you know, it's great for podcasts. But on CNBC, I'd have to think of a euphemism. But basically, the market felt like it had puked. And it felt like everybody was exhausted. You know, that we've all, you know, had the flu or drank too much or whatever. That moment after you have vomited, 
you have a tremendous sense of exhaustion and relief. Yeah. And that was the feeling of the mood of the market, March 9th, 2009. And I checked in for two more days. And then on March 12th on my blog, I said, hey, look, I think it's a great time to buy. I have a profound sense that the moment and the anxiety and the buildup, which, you know, if you're feeling nauseous, you don't want to. But then there's a moment where you're like, I just need to purge. I need to get this over with. And that was the feeling of the mood of the market. It's such a great exercise for traders because on a daily basis, what is the mood of the market? And if you do a check-in and you're confident that you can get a pre-verbal state of mind, well, then you can start to rely on that intuition and that sense of what's going on. Now, a couple so of great, great point. A couple yeah. things on that. You know, I see that all the time where people are just, you know, they're so locked in on the charts that they're just, or like, especially one stock and they're just total tunnel vision. And then they make a bad emotional decisions. But, you know, again, back to that newer, say somebody that's a month into this, you know, everyone wants to shortcut the path to success, but how do you get to that point where you know the mood of the market or is it just time? You know, I, I, and obviously I'm not as smart as you are. I just tell people you gotta, you gotta have seat time. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta sit there and you gotta watch the market. But, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm going to make a distinction, and I, I actually don't think I'm that smart, believe it or not. I, I, it's not that I'm not smart. It's just that everybody – Well, I did my 23 and me. I'm like 75% uh, 75% uh, Neanderthal, so like, you know, I'm basically a caveman. So. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm 60% crocodile, so, you know, I, 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 tend to think, I tend to think wisdom is what we're talking about here, and – I think wisdom is a more important skill. And let me define wisdom. It's the degree to which you're in, in touch with reality, right? I say it's, um, it's seeing the world for what it is, not what you would prefer it to be, right? And so that one skill is really tough. And I thought I was really good at that as an investor. So some clues in answer to your question, Tim, how do you know when you have it? That is, are you a good investor? There are lots of ways to build in an exercise. One is, if you find yourself thinking about the market and lots of words are going through your head and it's jumbled and there's no consistent riff or refrain, and mostly that's experienced as intellectual and your brain hurts and you're not activated and feel elevated, well, then you're not really tuning into the mood of the market. What you are is engaged in a mental analytical process. If, on the other hand, you're like watching CNBC and all of a sudden you have a, an insight come in or you're looking at that stock chart, and all of a sudden you have a flash, and it's accompanied by a sense of euphoria, chances are you're pre-verbal. Chances are you're tapping that right side of the brain, the intuitive side of the brain. So those are some check-ins. And in terms of a practice, well, here's a cool one. Um, it, most of us commute or most of us drive in some form or fashion to work, though, post-COVID. We'll, we'll see what happens. I used to do an exercise all the time when I was driving into work, and I'd be like, and I'd try and tune in pre-verbal the mood of the driver in front of me, where are they going to turn off? Are they going to, when, how soon, how many lights are they going to turn off? And are they going to turn left or are they going to turn right? Very simple exercise, 50-50 chance. And day after day, week after week, year after year, I just started training my consciousness to the point where I was batting maybe 70-ish percent accuracy huh. on that, where you could sort of tell. Uh, when I lived in New York City, when Kim, Kim first met me, it would be, I'd look at somebody on the subway, I'd kind of go in a meditative state and be like, where's their stop? And I know there's six stops between where I got on in Harlem and where I got off at 51st Street on the 6th train. 
I'd be like, okay, they're going to be getting off at 72nd, and I know that they're or 77th. I can't remember what the stop is on the on the east side of the city, yeah. but I'd like try to predict where it was they were going to get off to just sharpen that practice. And so you can actually practice these techniques in a low risk, doesn't cost you a fortune way. Just start tuning in. Can I feel what's going to happen? And most people well, will establish an intent in their mind ahead of time that you can read. And I and I love it because you know it's it's such a simple thing, but it's like. You're, you, you know, and I know a lot of people will probably be like, oh, it's, you know, woohoo mystical stuff. But it's like, think about just trying to train your brain to be intuitive versus scrolling your Instagram for 45 minutes. You know, I mean, I, I think that's a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experiment with that. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in my experience, because I've, I've mentored and coached people over the years and from, from individual investors up, intuition is the one I'm most hesitant to coach people on because it really requires a uh, a commitment to self-exploration. You have to be able to strip away your ego and your biases and your preferred ways of thinking. And one of the preferred ways of thinking is that there isn't stuff there. So the, the proper name for that is rational determinism. And I used to be a card-carrying member of the rational deterministic school. If you had had this conversation with me when I was 28 years old, I'm now 50, I would have gone, Jason, you're full of it. <laughs> that, what you're talking about is complete mumbo-jumbo, complete woohoo stuff. But then I started having experiences that I couldn't explain with, you know, a purely rational, deterministic, or what's sometimes called materialistic viewpoint, and I had to, I had to adjust my thinking. And I, it's not easy. These, what I'm talking about is not easy, which is why I don't advise a lot of people just willy-nilly do it, because there's a fine line between real intuition and just guessing. And until you refine your consciousness, and by the way, it's a strong argument to work with you three. My understanding is each of you spend time in this space. Kim, I know you're intuitive. You're a coach. Um, I, I'd love to hear your comment on this. How many people do you think that you coach are good at tuning into their intuition and really have a profound sense of, hey, I'm really doing it? it. I, I think uh, more than realize. I, I think a lot that do don't even know they're doing it. I can see they don't know how to trust it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. I, one of the reasons why intuition is tough, and you can see there's my company name, Active Investment Management Consulting. Um, I, I, you know, make my living now as a consultant, and I advise investment pros like at mutual funds and pensions on how to improve their investment returns. Intuition is one of the things that mo many sort of advanced investors are into, but I'm very selective in, in working with people because there are a bunch of obstacles. One, can you achieve a meditative state? That alone is tough. And I'll give an exercise in just a minute if, if you guys are into it. Uh, sure, one way yeah, to do yeah. it. Um, but then the next skill is you then have to be able to interpret that pre-verbal, pre-math experience into something meaningful. Then third, to your point, Kim, you have to trust that, that there's real content there and that I can make something with it. All of that took me years and years and years. So I had my first sort of opening and awakening on this around 28, 29 years old. It took like two or three years of constant practice getting really good at this, and trust was one of the three big obstacles to getting there. Um, anyway, yeah, I agree. It's a tough practice. I think there's so much advocacy to not – because the, there are so many who are just guessing and don't really understand what true intuition is – that they uh, stumble and fall and or all the information coming in from all the teachers uh, are telling them, you know, you can't trust your intuition. You, you have to be, uh, 
You have to be analytical about this. And I, and I think because of that, for the most part, I would say, yes, that's correct. And I'm, I'm certainly not wanting somebody to suddenly start, you know, uh, testing their intuition in big costly ways. But the point is though there are those who I've seen have success based on this sense of knowing that they can't articulate, they can't put words on it, they can't hang it on something. And so they they look at it almost as though it's a foreign object. And they're like, well, I don't know how to put that in the box that I've been told my whole life it has to fit in. And so therefore they discard it. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's science around this. And this I'll, I'll describe a little bit of science because since I published Intuitive Investor, um, it was reviewed in Barron's, which I was I loved that it was reviewed. Not a lot of books get reviewed in Barron's. And the one criticism from the reviewer, the reviewer liked the book, but he said there's not enough science supporting, you know, uh, what's in the book. I wrote the book, and I, Kim, if you were to open up the front cover, it would say it's dedicated to those who believe in their experiences, excuse me, experiences above all else. Yeah. And yep. there it is, right? <laughs> dedicated Every person who believes in his or her experiences above all else. The reason why is I thought if I can help people have an experience, like the temperature of the room thing, they'll believe it. Well, there are a number of people who are so skeptical, and our modern world is really skeptical of anything that's sort of pre, pre-verbal, pre, pre-math, oh, yeah. that I've collected now for 12 years, a lot, or for 10 years rather, all the scientific literature that's been done on intuition. And I'll quote one piece of research that demonstrates intuition's power. Um, there's a classic psychological test uh, for creativity as well as problem solving where they have four words and you're supposed to infer a fifth. And they it's not multiple choice. And those words might be something like, I'm trying to think um, of one off the top of my head, uh, garbage, rubbish, uh, I can't even go there. But anyway, they're four similar Waste. words and it implies, what'd you say? Waste, right? And it implies Waste. a fifth word that you're supposed to guess. So neuroscientists have looked at people's ability to solve these problems. And by the way, if you solve a high proportion of those and in quick time, you're really good at creativity, tend to be a better investor as well. Um, but anyway, they've also looked at people in fMRI machines and they've seen uh, people's brains activating. And when people solve a high proportion of these and they are asked later, they, they do the test and after every problem they solve, they're supposed to indicate with a finger button, was that an analytical process or did it just come to you in a flash? And the accuracy rate is higher for those who indicate a flash by like 40%. So pre-verbal is better. It happened pre-verbal, pre-analytical crunch. Not only that, but when they look in the fMRI machine at the activity of the brain, the whole brain is lighting up in those solutions. So that's an indication in terms of whether you're not, you're thinking intuitively is, that whole brain activity feels really good, right? It's like it's like you're in the zone. There's an activity there that's different than when I'm like scrunched up and my forehead is pinched together and I'm grinding out an analytical solution. But anyway, there is evidence that intuition is more successful in solving problems than is analysis. And yeah, I tell you, it's, it's, studies, but- it's funny. I've... Uh... You know, I've, I've dabbled in meditation. Um, I need to get back into it. I actually did a stretch of, of over a year meditating every day. I think I almost made it like 400 days. And, man, it, it, it's weird how I would I – would, there were times I would feel that. I would almost feel that, like, warming of the scalp when I was making decisions and stuff. So 
the bummer is you just reminded me that I haven't felt that in a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you're still meditating, right? Science shows you're hitting that meditative state every single day. You just don't know it. Right. Um, and I, I promised earlier that I would share an exercise with the audience because meditation can be intimidating. And the number one thing I get from audiences is I tried meditation once I sucked. Right. Um, and, that's, <laughs> and that's because we've turned meditation to yet another goal directed activity and we've lost sight of something. Um, so the first point about that is if we're bicycle riding and everybody's a bicycle rider, uh, ST, I know that you're a bicycle rider. Yes. You, I'm trying to involve you in the conversation. Raise your hand. You're a bicycle rider. Steven. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm like, who ST? That could be me. I'm thinking it's me. No, but <laughs> yeah. just to say, it's your initials. Just, just to say, I, I, I am, I am, um, no, no, I am, I am very pro this kind of practice. I've done a lot of Joe Dispenza stuff. Um, yeah. I've done some deep, deep meditations. Generally, I do meditate an hour to two hours a day. And, um, and, and in these states, I can feel, I can really feel along both sides of, of, of my head, um, almost a rewiring of my brain. And, and it's transformed my trading in ways I can't describe. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Like, that's why we had to get you involved. And I'm sorry if I'm dominating, but um, the, one, the reason I brought up bicycle riding is when we bicycle ride, we usually have a destination in mind, right? So we're starting point A. We've got point B to go to. We don't judge the quality of our bicycle ride based on a laser beam shot from point A to point B, staying right on the perfect line, the straight and narrow all the way there. No, we accept that part of bicycle riding is we're going to deviate off course and we have to make constant adjustments to get to point B from point A. Meditation is exactly the same way. Point B is meditative state with some form of stability so we can start to do kind of cool stuff like you're describing. And yet everybody's judgment of meditation is I did it once for five minutes, I sucked. And what they're really saying is I was embarrassed that I didn't have control over my mental faculties because in our culture we so exalt mental functioning and to be shown that you don't have good control over that makes us feel foolish. Ergo, I suck at meditation. I'll never do that again because that was embarrassing. It's like, no, 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 no. The very fact that you have trouble, when you first lift 50 pounds on a dumbbell and you're trying to do a curl, good luck, right? You got to start small. So when you're meditating, you're going to deviate. Your mind will wander, no doubt, but then build up, right? We accept with exercising, it takes time to build up. So you got to build up to sustained attention where you're getting those really cool insights. Um, so the exercise for the audience is take a moment, maybe even write it down, pen, woohoo, pen, um, write down things that rejuvenate you. And don't use sleep. That's a little bit facetious, though people, there's a particular type of sleep that where you can't have insight, but most of us can't achieve that. It takes a big, deep practice to do that. But if you write down the things that rejuvenate you, we talked about some of them earlier, exercise, gardening, um, Riding a bike, which is a form of exercise, uh, running, um, I like to do the dishes and sweep the floor. Those activities that rejuvenate us, if you check in, you'll notice that the same things we've been describing here are happening. Insights are coming. We've been, driving is another one. Driving, we have a place we're trying to get to, so we're trying to pay attention, but we also have to have an awareness at the same time. Otherwise, we don't get there. We don't notice the pedestrian crossing the street. We also uh, don't notice that the lights turned red and we got to slow down. These activities have those two things in common, some sort of goal-directed activity, but coupled with awareness. And that's, those are the two bookends of a good meditative practice. 
So do what rejuvenates you, and I guarantee you'll start to have insights. So if you don't want to shave your head, move to the Himalayas, and sit up in a cave, um, <laughs> I tell you that's that's something actually Kim Kim has coached me on and and uh actually I've I've probably failed miserably with her coaching. Well, I've I've made baby steps, but like like great example this past weekend. So something that I really enjoy doing is is actually like like carpentry, particularly cabinet building and I helped the buddy hang his entire kitchen cabinets. He's remodeling, hired, you know, hung all the cabinets. I mean, it's a huge kitchen and it was a 12 hour day. And I ended that day, like, first of all, crazy high energy and like with the best mood I ever. And, and it's like, and I I'm driving home from his house. I'm like, why don't I do that more? I'm like, why don't I pursue that? It's like my energy, my mood, everything. So you had a 12 hour I, meditation, Tim. That I did basically, basically. Meditation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a you're here, I retreat. working. I mean, this, I mean, yeah. hanging cabinets isn't easy, especially upper cabinets. But you're cabinets, in the zone. But, but I was in the zone. zone. Yeah. Yeah. That's your zone. <laughs> yeah. I love that story because all of us listening in, those of us live here, those of us who are going to see this podcast, all of us know that really cool, Similar thing, plumber, carpenter, whatever, who comes in and they are also not just plumber, but Zen master, right? And those are people who are plumbers, capital P, carpenters, capital C, and they have life wisdom. And I'm envious because they've turned what could otherwise be just a a very simple rote craft into high art. And we've all met those people. We're like, wow, that dude was cool or that gal was cool. And it's because every day. You're you're right. They're always cool. I mean, I, yeah. I know that's kind of a corny term, but you yeah. meet this guy that's like really good at something. He's never an asshole. Never, never an exactly. asshole. <laughs> so true. That is so true. <laughs> that's so true. Kim, you have a question. I can tell. I, I wanted to, I love the, the chapters in your book about the gift of ignorance and the gift of fear. Would you talk a little bit about those two things? Oh, these are great. These are great for t- people who like to trade. Um, so most of us, to me, there are two big emotional obstacles that get in the way of people uh, being able to tap their intuition. Um, the first is uh, they engage in anxiety, right? And the gift of fear is if you have to start to get some self-awareness. With a, with a meditation practice, you can begin to do that. And as you start to notice when you're feeling anxious, um, you've, you've to find a boundary, right? There's the boundary, the anxiety, and here's me. And every time I get up there, I go, and I get scared. And I usually pop into unconsciousness and reactivity and instinct, and I walk away. And yet our anxieties are indicating to us, hey, I don't know what's over on that other side. What's on the other side of that boundary that I'm uncomfortable with? And once you get there, there's only one solution. Take a leap of faith and cross that boundary. And I think one of my big practices as an investor that has made me really good is I have a, a motto, which is if something scares me, I have to do it, yep. right? So if I'm scared big to bungee yep. jump, I gotta go bungee jump. If I'm scared to um, of a, accounting, and I think that accounting might be a rich source of return, well, I damn well better go learn accounting. And if you make a practice of that on a daily basis, do one thing that scares you, all of a sudden, instead of this being your capability set, you go boom, 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 boom. You just start growing as a human being, and you're no longer restricted by your anxieties. Likewise, ignorance. And ignorance is even easier. A lot of us, again, feel bad when we feel ignorant. But there's a ready-made solution. It's called the Internet. It's called read a book. It's called watch your favorite podcast. 
if you feel ignorant about something, a lot of us turn around and they run head tail back into our safety spot. If I feel ignorant, I recognize that it's a gift because yeah. I just now reveal, ah, I got to get a solution to this. I, I you know, I, th- this could probably come off as a, a little, I mean, hopefully this doesn't sound cocky, but something that I greatly pride myself in is man, like the first thing, like if you're, if I walk in and you're doing something and I don't understand it, the first thing I want to do is like, you know, ask, you know, like, how, how do you know how to do that? Can you show me how to do that? And I think, you know, again, I hope this doesn't sound cocky, but I had a successful business. I sold it. I do what I love just like you do to this day. I think one of the reasons I'm in the position I am is I've always had that mindset where, like you said, if it's accounting, show me how you, how, how do you do accounting? You know, how do you do this? How do you do CAD? You know, I, sh- hell, I went to the community college and learned, I got a, I got my degree in welding just because I wanted to know how to weld, you know, and I think that's a, that's a big thing. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So I agree. So I call those gifts because most of us, when we get there, we don't experience them as gifts. We experience them as scary. And usually it happens subconsciously that we feel ignorant or we feel anxiety and we immediately, we find ourselves, there's almost like a blanking out and we're back into safety and the gap between where we were anxious or, or ignorant and where we are comfortable again, that moment is such a great moment. If you can get mastery of, hey, I'm in that space again whoa, I got to lean in rather than lean back in these moments. That's, that's, that's an important skill. The, uh, the, the first thing that I thought of around scary was I really uh, heard about Wim Hof for a long time, the cold shower, uh, deep breathing uh, guru. And Tim Ferriss was talking about him forever. And I just was absolutely adamant that I would not be somebody who likes cold showers. Like <laughs> I was like, that is just so wrong on so many levels. It just felt like it was going to be just too painful. Uh, and I can't even say how much I love it now and how much it, that discomfort that I, and I'm still learning. I'm certainly not sitting in an ice bath like Wim does in his, you know, YouTube videos, but I have pushed myself beyond what I thought was my comfort zone. And that sense of accomplishment, that sense of, first of all, doing something that's really hard to do a lot in the day feels not as hard because I saw, oh, look at that. I was able to do it, you know, two minutes, five minutes, whatever it is. So it's true. It just, it does. It changes. It, 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 I, I almost want to say it rewires your brain around what you think you can do when you prove to yourself that you can go beyond what you thought you could before. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Wim Hof, and, uh, but I'm also a fan of David Goggins. And I know Tim Bourne will be on the side and, David Goggins always says, do something that sucks every day. And it's the idea that if you do something that, that measures a level of discomfort, then nothing else in the day will be as challenging. And it helps you come over the kind of the ordinary anxieties. Yeah, agreed. It, there's a kind of cool practice you can do for those who are listening who do meditate. Most of us have vlogged and recorded our great fears. Like, I, I don't like to cook, right? I, I, I admit I'm anxious about cooking, and so I've made a systematic practice to sort of, you know, not cook. But when you're meditating, if you have something like that, you, you're in a safe place, right? You're, I'm here in my office in my chair. I've got my door closed. My cats are lassoed upstairs like they can't come down and invade my podcast space here. Um, I got pretty safe, right? Like, the likelihood of anything bad happens to be pretty slim. So I'm comfortable, I'm in my meditation, and I place into my mind something that makes me uncomfortable. And what I start to do is notice what does it feel like in my body to feel that. 
and you do multiple things. And you notice that fear, the response or the reaction to stimulus is universal, right? Why is that important? If you then name that fear, then it becomes, this is how you can use your analytical mind well. You name that and you bring it into consciousness. You transform it from a feeling into something you can name. Then when you're feeling as a trader and you're watching a stock that you've invested in fall 10, 15, 20%, then you go, oh, fear, that's what I'm feeling right now. Or I'm listening to that executive on CNBC, fear, that's what I'm feeling right now. Then you can process it analytically. You're no longer reacting. You can now choose. And to move from reaction to choice is so powerful. And that's one practice you can do using meditation is start to name these emotions well so that when they happen, you can go, oh, I'm experiencing fear. That's what this is. Being the observer, being the observer of the emotion instead of just being taken for a ride by the emotion. Totally. That's the name of, this, that's the, name of the game. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Totally agreed. So last words that, you know, somebody knew, maybe they're just starting out. What do you think are the most important, uh, you know, you're, you're, let's just say you're just talking to them one-on-one about what they're, you know, they're probably not going to have a lot of support in their life about becoming a day trader. Uh, they're going to probably find resistance with anybody that are their peers or their parents or their girlfriend or boyfriend. What are the things that you would say? are the top three things they need to consider or kind of hold as practices uh, or guiding lights as they go forward? Well, the first one I would say be safe, right? So before I was talking at the top of this conversation about the fact that investing is a spiritual path because you're getting a, you're casting your mind and your choices out into the universe and like a message in the bottle the market returns are coming back to you. The individual security returns are coming back to you in the form of a bottle. Um, so you're getting a clear signal. So kudos to you for taking that on because it can be humiliating, no doubt. So be safe. And what I mean by be safe is don't, don't bet everything you own on a hunch, right? So I, me personally, I, if I put $5 in just for, for, for ease of arithmetic, $5 in, and I make $3, then take my $5 back out and invest with the $3. So I'm always playing with gains. That's one great tip at the beginning until you start to get, you know, I'm going to see if I can do the direction correctly, right? You want to go <laughs> up like this. Gap between this, this is my initial investment, and this is my return, the gap right here. I like to play with the gap until I'm comfortable that I know what I'm doing because you've mentioned that you have a lot of beginners on there. So that's one way to be safe. Right? And I think people who are concerned about day traders is we've heard the horror stories of people not doing it well. And what our friends and family are saying is, I'm afraid for you, even though they can't necessarily articulate. So you assure them that you're being safe. That's one thing. The second is believe in yourself. Um, I'm a big believer that the mind is vast and grant yourself permission to be that vast thing. Right. So if you're analytical, find a way to exalt your analytical capabilities. So you may be the day trader who's great at number crunching. And rather than it being analytical and a narrowing thing, we talked about it gives me a headache, for example. What if you're the type of person who looks at data and that's actually what activates our consciousness and being it helps us be bigger than, than before? Well, then do that. Exalt that. If, on the other hand, you're not that, there's still space for you in investing, right? So there's great room for intuition. There's great room for people who can assess 
the quality of management teams and the psychological factors that can assess the psychology of the market. Investing is as big as you are, basically. So that's the second tip, and grant yourself permission to be that, that person. And then third, have fun. Investing, I think, is I heard a cussing earlier. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, we can curse. Yep, we yep, can curse. Yep. Thank God. It's tons of fun. It's tons of fun. Right? It's really cool. There's no bigger feeling to me than I've cast my consciousness net out into the big, vast universe, and I was right. Oh, my God, I was right. That's an amazing <laughs> feeling, and it's really fun. And if you have the mood, the, the, the mindset that if I fail and I've lost a little bit of money, it's a lesson to learn. Yep. It's a constant teacher. And if you are paying attention, you're going to get better and better. I, I, I'm positive of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, either win or, you either win or you learn. That's the best way to, to describe it. You either win or you learn, and, and don't fall back, fall forward. Yeah, I love that. And by the way, I'd be remiss, Kim, to, to not mention my – I have another book, Return of the Active Manager, that came out in October – Okay. Probably not quite right for the day trading audience. It's really written for investor pros, but there's some cool stuff on there because I've advanced my thinking since okay. 2000. And there is some information in there that would be useful in terms of like types of insights that you can get as a day trader. We didn't have time to talk about them today. Maybe have me back again. Yeah, we can talk about yeah. there. Absolutely. Uh, but the emotional aspects of investing are rarely covered, and yet that's 90% of the battle in my mind. I'm... You know, I'm on, I'm on that, of that mind as well. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Any last questions, Tim? Steven? No, no, I'm good. I, again, Jason, thank you. Thank you very much. Love this. And yes, would love to have you back. I mean, I feel like, you know, I kind of feel like this was just an introduction to what we could even get started with. Um, I, I, you know, I, sometimes I'm brutally honest. I did not have time to read the book. I'm looking forward to it doubly so now and would love would love, love, love to have you back after I after I get a chance to read it. So, oh, cool. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I, I love it too. Um, what was I going to say? And I I would love feedback too from the audience. Some of you are going to watch this on recording rather than live. In the comments section, I'll, I'll look at the comments. If you're interested in a version 2.0 of Intuitive Investor, let me know. I turned to my wife this morning before the podcast, and I said. You know, I've got some time on my hands right now, and I've got a couple projects I'm working on. Should I update the book? If you guys are into that, uh, say it in the comment section. That's that's good feedback for me and how you can yeah. pay me back for what I've done today. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I, I say yes to it uh, 2.0, but, but I think it's hard to improve upon this book. So the book again, guys, is The Intuitive Investor, Jason Apollo Voss. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Jason. This was so awesome and juicy good and a topic that we don't talk about nearly enough, in my opinion. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys and gals. Aloha for now. Yeah, aloha. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.